If I could, if you could uh, turn to the page in the bulletin, I'd like to read uh, from Ephesians chapter 6. We are now entering into the final mini-series of the book of Ephesians, a year-long journey for those of you who are visiting. Uh, we've been covering the book of Ephesians, and we are now in the last real section of this epistle from Paul uh, to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, it's also printed in your bulletins. I'm going to start from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the, from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And this is God's word. Now, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, I'm going to give you a very brief recap. You see, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about what powers the church, what gives the church power. It's the gospel. And because Jesus died, Paul says we died in him. And because Jesus rose again, we rise again with him. In other words, because of Jesus' life, he lived the life that we should live. He died the death that we should die. Because of the gospel, union, we are in him. That's what powers the gospel. And then he goes into chapter 4, and there it becomes very practical from chapters 4 through 6 because what Paul says is the gospel then transforms everything in the church, everything going on in the church, in the life of the church. Because you have this new life in Christ, you can put off sin and you can put on Christ. Now, the emphasis here is not on your ability to put something off and put something on. You do whatever you can, Paul says, because you now have power to do it in Christ. But Paul specifies, you came to know him. You've heard of him. You were taught in accordance with him in, in the word. You have been made new, and so you are renewed. And in that renewal, you now have power. And so in chapter 4, he says, now I'm going to begin to show you the pattern of what happens when you put off things and put on Christ. And so as a church, he goes into chapter 5, he continues on, he reminds us of what a church, a community of people who are dearly loved children, they are wise. They now have great motivation. 
They have a great power as a church then to live wisely, to make the most of every opportunity, to be filled with the Spirit, and as a result, you now live in gratitude. And that gratitude changes what you think. That gratitude changes what you say. That gratitude changes how you live. You're going to be wise. You're going to understand what the Lord's will is. You're going to pursue that. You're going to want that. It's going to change the way you relate to one another, he says. And he goes on and on, chapters 4 through 5. He, it's a beautiful letter we've seen. Chapter 5, he enters into what we call the household code. We see this in the ancient scriptures, in the ancient writings of all the scholars and commentators of the past, wives and their husbands and how they relate to each other, children and their, and their parents, how they relate to each other. He talks about slaves, they were really servants, and their masters and how they relate to each other. That's very relevant because we have people today, marriage as an institution. We have people with families residing in this church. Everyone here is an employer or an employee. And so he says this, back then, your employees lived with you, right? Your servants lived with you in the same house. He says, I want you both. It's remarkable. It's amazing because no other scholar said it like this. I want you to submit to one another. Remember, wives were put down. Children were low. Slaves, servants were low. He says, you have the power now to relate with one another. You can actually put yourself in the other person's shoes. You can actually submit to one another. It's a powerful thing. The meaning of the church. Today, we enter this final discourse of Paul. He says, lastly, verse 10, finally, put on the full armor of God. He's speaking metaphorically. Obviously, he's not talking about physical armor. He's speaking metaphorically. When you become a Christian, Paul says you are filled with the Spirit. So you're able to put on a very new mindset. You have a whole new view of life, your worldview. It's a changed life. And by that, he's saying you've now put on armor, union with Christ. So now because you are in Christ, you have this armor. You put it on. He says, put it on. What does that mean? Apply this worldview in your life. Don't just, have, don't just compartmentalize what you know, this truth that you know, and then live life as you've always been living it. He says, you have this armor. Put it on. Put it to effect. What does that mean? We're going to end this entire series in Ephesians by walking through the armor of God. And I have the privilege, I have the pleasure to provide an overview today because the next five weeks, my brothers, you know, our pastors, you know, Justin and Brian, they're going to break it down for you, but I'm going to give you an overview today. So today you're only going to get the appetizer, everyone else is going to bring you the entree, okay? Three points. Why do you need this armor? What is the armor? How do you put it on, right? You can't get more simple than that, right? Why do you need it? What is it? How do you put it on? How do you wear it? First, we're going to look at why do you need it. Verse 11, when Paul says, put on the full armor of God, he's saying a few things. One, by saying that you need to put on armor, he's saying life is a war. Life is a war. Life is a battle. Every day, there is a battle going on for your heart. Life is a war. Every day, there is a battle going on for your heart. What you want versus, Paul says, when, you put on the, when, you, when, you, when your life is filled with the Spirit of God, he says, you're going to understand the Lord's will for you. Every day there's a battle. That means that right now, even here, you are standing on a battleground. It is life or death every day. When you're in war, 
When you are in a war, we haven't been in a war, right? We haven't had an attack or a war in human soil probably in a very, very long time, centuries, right? But when you're in a war, it is life or death. Number two, when you're, when you're in a war and you're putting on armor, that makes you a soldier. You're an enlisted soldier. That means that God is not your employer. He is not your boss. You see, the Bible talks about God being your father. The Bible talks about God being your God. But here, Paul takes that and he says, he is your commanding officer. How you are dressed shows where you are going and how ready you are. It shows you your identity. If you're an enlisted soldier, that means there's no retreat. If you're an enlisted soldier, that means you can't quit. You can't just walk away. In fact, modern-day war, even today, if you walk away from a battle, we've seen this in the news probably in recent years, when you walk away from battle, that is against all. You are committing a capital crime. You can be executed for that. And just like that, and the Roman soldiers knew that back then. The ancients understood the concept. You never walk away from a war. You never walk away from a battle if you are at war. And so Paul's saying, God is your commanding officer. You are at war. That means that you have to be dressed for war. Put it on. Put that armor on. You have to be ready for war. Being, having that armor shows you who you are, what citizenship you belong to. Obedience, then, is submission. Obedience, then, is courage because you have armor. Now, why do you need it? It also shows you why I need Verse 11, Paul explains, he says, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The Latin word for devil, that's where this is drawn from in your version of the Bible, right? Uh, the Latin word for devil is diabolo. Diabolo is where you get the word diabolical. Diabolical means what? Lies, schemes. What does the devil do? How does the devil defeat you? What he does is he gets into your mind he gets into your mind, he gets into your soul, and what he does, he takes something that you desire, and he inflames it with your imagination. He takes it to a different level. If you think about it, that's what anger is, because anger, for those of us who have anger issues, right, he takes something, and he inflames it with your, he inflames your imagination with, that takes you to a whole different level, and therefore, you explode, right? What is guilt? Because guilt isn't necessarily a bad thing in terms of what its purpose is, what it does. But what happens is when the devil gets in there with his lies, he'll take those lies and inflame your imagination as to what your guilt has done to you. And then what he does is because he's inflamed your imagination, it brings you completely down. You start to forget about the armor that you have on. You start to forget about the gospel. You forget about what Jesus has done for you. You forget about his righteousness covering over you. And as a result, now you see you in, in your frailty and your weakness and your sin, and you get brought down. And you say, that I, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe, maybe the Lord isn't. Maybe this is, this is who I am. And, and as a result, what happens is you start to give in to more. Guilt can lead you actually into more sin, greater sin, because you stop forgetting. You start to forget who you are. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise because all of our imaginations, even now, are being inflamed to a degree that they start to own, the desires at the root start to own us. Think about why you worry. 
what happens is something bad may have happened, or you're thinking about something bad that could happen. Your imagination starts to take over. It gets inflamed, and it acts on a particular desire in your heart. And what happens is that imagination that gets blown out of proportion, right? That's what fear is. Most fears, most fears are smaller than the reality. But what is fear when it takes over your life? When you live in fear, what happens? You are gripped by an imagination that, is, that has been inflamed. And who's fanning that imagination? Who's fanning the flames of that imagination? Paul says here, it's the devil, Diablo, a liar. That's what the devil does. And that's why the Bible consistently reminds us over and over, I want you to remember. I want you to think about this. I want you to consider this. If you read the book of Hebrews, consider, think, remember. If you read the Psalms constantly over and over. Why? Because the Bible is constantly reminding us who you are in Christ. Who you are. Who God is in your life. The Bible is constantly reminding us And so when you're putting on armor and you're an illicit soldier and you know you're at war, that life is a battle over and over, you know that you have to be calculated. A soldier is calculated. A soldier is strategic. A soldier is constantly thinking about the next step. A soldier knows that if he steps in the wrong place, right, what happens? It could be a landmine. Something could destroy him. And so he's constantly measuring his steps, constantly calculating. Paul says, I want you to have that kind of wisdom. I want you to be wise. Because there's lots of noise. There's lots of lies. There are lots of distractions that can easily ensnare us, rule us. Your armor, what you put on, enables you to separate what is urgent in your life from what is important in your life. That's the biblical definition of wisdom. So that you can focus. You can sift through that noise. You can sift through the distractions. You can sift through the imagination. You need an armor, to put on armor, to take your stand, Paul says, against these lies. Verse 12, because your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You need it, verse 13, so that when that day comes, when the day of evil comes, you can stand, Paul says. You can stand. That's why you need it. What is it? In short, in summary, it's the gospel. Putting on the armor means having the gospel. You put on armor. It's, it's putting something on, given to you. When a soldier has armor on, right, the armor doesn't act on itself, right? Now he becomes that armor. He's hidden in that armor. There is a union between him and what he has worn. And Paul says, I want you to put on Christ been given to you. Now, we said the next five weeks, our pastors, Brian and Justin, they're going to cover over most of the uh, the components of this armor, but I'm going to give you an overview of each component. Verse 14, he says, put on the belt of truth. Keep in mind, every other piece of armor that you see in the scripture in this passage here uh, is both offensive and defensive. It can be used offensively and defensively, but not a belt. A belt can't do that. A belt does neither, right? A belt isn't even a piece of armor. What does it do? And if you, if you look back in the ancient times, these Roman soldiers, they wore undergarments that were uh, very loose, right? They were called loincloths. They were very loose. 
And so they flowed everywhere. So you needed to wear something before you put on your armor. You needed to wear something to hold everything together, to hold your undergarments together. Because if you didn't, if you didn't tuck it in, it was a belt. It was a girdle, actually. That's what it was called, right? And Paul says, you have to wear this belt, this girdle of truth. Truth does what? Truth is a rational body, right, that we believe that holds everything together. Paul talks about truth. This is the word of God. This is the gospel, a rational body of truth that undergirds any spiritual experience that you may have in your life. You need it for several reasons. One, because it's not, if your life is just a combination of of spiritual experiences not undergirded by the word of God, not undergirded by truth, not undergirded by, then it's not going to be consistent. You see? So you need to validate that spiritual experience with truth, reality, real reality. Because a lot of times our spiritual experiences are not necessarily real. A lot of times our spiritual experiences, right, could be very just driven by emotion, driven by very loose commitments, maybe even driven by guilt. So you need to undergird that, that experience with and validate it and support it, rest on it, on truth, on a body of truth. Number two, you need to submit to that truth. It's not just about the experience of truth. It's about then the call and the experience of that truth. You need to submit to it. You need to believe it. You need to really trust in it. You need to live it out, he's saying. It's the foundation by which all of our lives, our ability to move forward and navigate, it holds everything together. In other words, what's underneath you, if you don't hold it all together, it's going to trip you up. You're going to be all over the place. If you don't trust in the gospel, if you take, then you're going to take matters into your own hands. You're going to have this body of truth that's available to you. You're going to have tremendous resources available to you, and yet, if you don't rely on it, if you don't apply it daily, if you don't have that truth undergirding all of your experiences, validating it, supporting your experiences, you're going to take matters still into your own hands, essentially. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be all over the place. You're going to experience things, and when you, when you, in your daily experiences, instead of processing it with what is holding everything together, you're just going to be loose. You're not going to have any consistency. You're going to trip over yourself. That's about the truth. Number two, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate covers what? Your vitals. It covers your heart. Because if something pierces through your heart, it's fatal. It's instant, especially in the ancient times. It's instant. What's Paul saying? He's saying that you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ needs to protect your heart. And that's very important because the word righteousness, a lot of times, it's not a word that we use commonly, right, in our everyday language. The word to be righteous is to be acceptable to God. So if you, what Paul's saying is you have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Knowing that you are acceptable before God Put that on. Let that cover over the vital things in your life. What he's saying is that if you don't have that kind of covering, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ covering over you, you are going to be naked. You will be exposed. You will have shame ruling your life. And when you have shame ruling your life, we all have had experiences of being ashamed. What happens? You're going to work to cover yourself up. Genesis chapter 2, this goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, what happens? You have Adam and Eve. 
And Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and they were naked. And they were naked, but there was no shame. Why? Because they were covered. In, they were covered. They had the love of the Father. They understood. They had a very intimate relationship with God. God was their Father. God was walking with them in the cool of the day. And they had a, this very deep, genuine, intimate relationship with God where there was no shame. But the instant that they chose to rebel against God, the instant that they chose to take matters into their own hands, what happened? They lost their covering. They recognized all of a sudden that they were naked. And the first thing that they did was what? They covered themselves with fig leaves. What do you think we do with our resumes? What do you think about what you share on your first date? You can recall the first date. Uh, for those of you who are married, if you can recall, um, for those of you going on dates, right? Your first date is always you're covering over yourself. Um, in fact, the very word curriculum vitae, your CV, your resume is what? The overview of your vitals, right? The overview of your life. What makes your life? Because a lot of us like to cover, in order to, you're dealing with shame, a deep-rooted shame because we've lost intimacy with God. We've lost the acceptance and righteousness that comes with knowing God, being in the Lord. And so when you don't have that status, you have to work for it. When you're not assured of that, wealth is a way to get status. It's a way to feel acceptable to the Lord. If you well, think about what we wear, why we have things like fashion. Fashion is art. Fashion is wonderful. But the thing is, a lot of times we take that. We have, we have taken our imaginations that have taken us to a completely different level because we said we need this to cover over ourselves in a way that makes us beautiful. We've used our beauty, wonderful things that God has given us, intimately, beautifully designing each individual, and yet we have taken that, and because we're so dissatisfied and there's such insecurity, because what we're looking for is a righteousness and acceptability before God, what we've done is we're covering over ourselves with all the other things that we can do. So we work for a reputation. We work for promotions. That's why we're all, this is one of the most overworked generations in the history of the world. Scholars, commentators, they're saying that. Now, those things are not going to last through a war. You need to be properly dressed, Paul's saying. You need to have a sufficient cover. We sang it this morning. Behold him there, the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. He's my armor. With Christ, my savior and my God. With Christ, my savior and my God. Friends, what do you wear for battle? What do you wear to show that you are righteous? What do you wear to show that you are acceptable? Because if you're working constantly to get acceptability before people as a cosmic way of representing that you deeply are known and loved and approved, will that last through this war, the real battle? Will it take you through? What about you? Verse 15, Paul says, May your feet be fitted with the readiness. I want you to put on readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Think about this. 
Whatever you wear on your foot, whatever you wear on your feet, it shows what kind of work you're going to be putting in. That's what it shows. So if you wear uh, running shoes, you know that you're going to go for a workout. You're going to be on a run. There's going to be a certain type of energy, right? Your shoes are designed to do certain things. If you're going to be playing basketball, right, you need ankle uh, support, right? You need heel support, something to absorb impact when you're jumping so you don't roll your ankle. When you're going to work, you're going to wear certain types of shoes. When you're, when you're going to do a certain type of work, you may be wearing boots, sometimes uh, metal, metal encased boots, right? It all depends on what kind of work you're doing. Your shoes have to be ad- adequate for any type of effort that you put in. And so when you fight, now think about this, in the ancient world, the most important cities the capitals were usually placed on a hill because if you overtake the capital, if you're on a hill, you can see everything. And if you're on a hill, you, can, you have to look up. You, that's the center, right? So if you're on a hill, it's much easier strategically to shoot downwards, to fight down than it is to fight uphill. So ancient soldiers, to take over a city, they had to go, they had to charge up hills. In fact, they do that now. You have to charge up hills. And so if you're in infantry, if you're an enlisted soldier, your shoes were very, very important. You needed shoes that were tough. You needed shoes that had great grip. You need to have shoes that were tough, they had great grip, but they were also light. Because if they're too heavy, you can't run. You're going to exert all your energies getting up the hill. Paul's saying, put on resilience, be tough. Put on a lightness at the same time, so that you're not so heavy and weighed down. Put on the assurance something that you can dig deep in, something that you dig your heels deep in so you will have traction as you journey in life. It doesn't matter how muddy it's going to get. It doesn't matter if the ground underneath you is shaking. Paul's saying, I want you to have a readiness to dig deep so that you can be resilient in your suffering, so that you are not weighed down by your troubles, by these earthly, worldly troubles. And friends, I mean, we have a room full of people who are weighed down by worldly troubles, don't we? That's what we pray about every day. Dig your heels deep, Paul says. You need to have a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the gospel, the good news that the, that the only battle that could ever ruin you has been fought and won by Christ. It's the only battle that could ever ruin you. We sit here and we're still troubled. Even, and Paul says, think about it, even your death, even illness, And that's why in the ancient times, in reading passages like this, Christians flocked to the church knowing that they're signing away their lives, knowing that they would be persecuted, knowing that they will die for what they believe. Those ancient times, they were terrible to Christians. They were placed before other people to put them to shame, and yet they flocked to the church. Women flocked to the church. Orphan children flocked to the church. Slaves and their masters flocked to the church knowing that persecution is right around the corner. And they did that because only the gospel resolved, reconciled their understanding of suffering. It brought meaning to their suffering. And only the gospel gave them peace in it. In Luke chapter 2, we have these shepherds that are tending to these sheep. And all of a sudden, it's really the, the Christmas story. The glory of God enveloped them. And in ancient times, when the glory of God envelops you, that means you're going to die because you have no mediator. There's nothing in your sin, in your weakness. To come before God would be to die, to perish in his holiness. His brightness is too bright. 
His beauty is so beautiful, it consumes anything around that's not. And so these shepherds are afraid, and yet the angel comes and says what? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. What he's saying is the war is over. The war between you and God is over. So stop fighting. Stop fighting for control. Stop fighting for approval. Stop working so hard for this. Because today, there is peace on whom God's favor rests. And so Paul says, I want you to be fitted with that. With that readiness, knowing so that you can journey well. In verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman shields were very, very large. And so, uh, in fact, they were almost as large, uh, almost as tall as the actual soldier. So uh, you only used a shield when the battle was fiercest, when the battle was thickest. Now think about it. You're charging up the hill. That's the fiercest part of the battle when you're taking the capital. You're charging and you're advancing. And what they did, what the enemy did was, on the hill, in their, in their fortresses, what they would do is they would take these arrows and they would fire downward. And so you would get hit by these arrows and you would die. But what they would do is they would cover with some sort of salve that when they would, when they would light it on fire, these arrows, these points, these darts, which would fly through the air, right, would catch on fire. And so it would, they were so powerful that if they hit you, right, your whole body would catch on fire and you would die. You would literally cook to death. And so Paul's saying, think about it, and you know, if you've got to understand this, uh, throughout the Bible, whenever you see the word arrow, it usually implied or meant hardship. Paul's talking about suffering. You need to put on a shield. Really, what Paul's saying is two things. One, you're in the thickest part of the battle now. This is it. This is that final charge. You are in it. I know that 70, 80, 90 years, some of you, beautiful, young, energetic, right? I was there once. I remember how beautiful and wonderful it was. Some of you, beautiful, young, energetic, lots of energy, lots of vitality, but it goes by quickly. Let me speak to you as a brother and as a father. It goes by quickly. This is the final charge. You are already in the thickest part of the battle, and Paul says you need to take up the shield faith. What you believe, how you view the world is critical in that journey. That's what Paul's saying. Is it enough to cover over all of you? Because this is the thickest part. This is when you are most outnumbered. This is when you are at the bottom. This is when you are fighting. So when you are ascending the hill, those en- the enemy is firing darts. Suffering is coming your way, and it doesn't come to an end. Right now, right now is the easiest you will ever have life. I know some of you guys came to hear good news. It sounds bad, doesn't it? Right? Right now, what you, the life that you are living right now, this juncture in time, put a pause on your life, like a VCR. Do we have VCRs anymore? Put a pause on your Netflix right now, the Netflix of your life. Right now, right, is the easiest you will ever have life. It only gets harder. It only gets harder. You have no idea what's going to happen five minutes from now in your life. It's going to get harder. And so the enemy is constantly firing darts. And if you are not dressed properly, Paul's saying, when that suffering hits you, you will be consumed. It will rule and take over your life. If you, have the, if you don't have a shield, you will be consumed. 
So either suffering is going to consume you because you don't believe, or suffering is going to remake you because you do. Let the gospel cover over all of you. Every sin, every guilt, every failure. My younger years, when I was first coming to rediscover the gospel, I, I heard something or read something. I can't remember which one it was, but nevertheless, it's there. I remember this uh, pretty famous preacher sitting back and saying, when he goes to sleep, he recounts as he's praying and drifting off. You know, some people count sheep. Some people, I don't know, count coins. I don't know who does that. I don't know, right? But uh, this pastor did was he counts his day. He looks back on his day, and he recounts all the things that he did wrong, all the areas where he's failed. He says, the way I spoke to my wife, the way I spoke to my children, and one by one, he recounts and he says, praise God, the Lord has covered over this sin. Praise God, the Lord has covered over this sin. He looks at everything that he did wrong. I messed up here. I forgot to do this. The Lord has covered over that. The Lord has covered over that. And then what he does is, then he goes, and as he's drifting off into sleep, he thinks about all the good things he did. And he says, this good thing that I did for this person, the Lord has covered over that too. And the good thing I did over here, the Lord has covered over that too. And the good thing I did here, the good thing I said, the good thing I thought, the Lord has covered over that too. You see, as a shield of faith, do you have it on? Verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Your helmet protects your head. It focuses your eyes. It has a dual purpose to protect you on one hand, that means everything you think, everything you see, everything you hear is protected by this helmet. And it focuses you. You only see forward. You are not sidetracked when you wear a helmet. It's designed that way. You have to dress yourself. He says a helmet of salvation. You have to dress yourself in a way where your salvation protects you in every way. Your salvation protects and focuses all of your senses so that you do not leave yourself vulnerable and become distracted in the war by what all these other things, maybe it's what people say about you, maybe it's what your boss says about you. Some of you, it's what your parents have said to you that stays with you. They may not even be around anymore, but they are very, very alive because what they say to you will never leave you. Don't let what you don't know destroy what you do know. Let, let the salvation of Christ rescue you Shape your senses and the way you view the world. And if you have that, you can face any danger. You can face any suffering. You'll keep sharp. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, he says, take on, take the sword of the Spirit. Now, Paul begins with the belt of truth, right? The girdle of truth, which is inside. That's the word of God. And then he ends with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the belt of truth, we said, is neither offensive nor defensive, but the sword of the Spirit is both offensive and defensive. He says the Word holds everything together. The Word of God can be used to defend. When you say defend who you are, you don't have to fight for your own righteousness. We just talked about that. The Word of God tells you and shows you, let that speak for you. Let that defend you. And then he says, but it can also be used as an offensive weapon. In fact, the sword is the only true offensive weapon, the only true offensive weapon, the only one that can be used solely for, as a truly offensive weapon, right, in this entire armor, 
right? Uh, in other words, what you can say, you can fight a battle without a sword, but you can't win a battle. You can't win a war without, without a sword, right? You can't advance without a sword. Ephesians is about the meaning of the church. And so what Paul is saying is you need truth, something that the church can stand on, something that holds the church together. But you also need to apply it. You need to apply the gospel, the word of God, at any instance, in any circumstance. Let the word be your sword to lead you, guide you, advance you. A lot of times in our world today, we think of Christianity only being a defensive thing. A defensive thing. We say that, uh, you know, in our world today, people are so sensitive and almost belligerent towards Christian thinking. And so you have to always be on the defense. And you see that everywhere and without getting into everything that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, or the last couple of years, or the last couple of decades, or the last couple of centuries, or the last couple of millennia. We can go on and on. You see, nothing's changed. The Apostle Paul here, I'll say it this way, Matthew 16. Jesus asks Peter a very important question. He says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what Peter was saying, because if you look at the passage before, Peter is saying that everybody else says you are a prophet, but I know that you are the prophet of prophets. You are the ultimate prophet. You are the ultimate one who has been sent, the Christ. Everyone else says that you may be Elijah, you may be Jeremiah, but you are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says in response, you are Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, you can d- interpret that a lot of ways. People say, well, he must have been talking about um, you know, one side, people say he must have been talking about just Peter's confession, right? Not Peter himself. The other side, there's a whole other side that a whole denomination has sprung up from this saying that Peter was actually the first pope, right? Because he, God, Jesus said that on, on you, I will build my church. So which one is it? And really what Peter himself explains in First Peter, he says the church is made up of living stones built up, Right? built up by Christ, of which Christ is the cornerstone. We are all living stones built up into a spiritual house. That's the church. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, as he's talking to Peter, he says, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We, live in, we believe that Christianity is a very defensive faith today. But in that world where Christians were being persecuted for what they believe, Matthew 16 says that the gates of Hades will not overcome what? We think we're behind the gate and and the enemy is crashing against our gates. That's not what Jesus says about his church. Jesus says you are charging the gate and it's the gates of Hades that will not overcome it. See that? The word of God this body of truth, this rational body of truth on which you stand holds everything together and speaks out. That does not mean that we are always offensive. That does not mean that we, we, we strut. It means we journey the way that Christ has compelled us to journey in love, in grace, 
but also with reason. Empathy on one hand for others, reason and rational body of truth on the other, you see. And you put that together, and he says, I want you to live the Christian life. That's Ephesians 4 to 6, really. That's what he's talking about. It changes relationships. If you have a whole body of people acting that way, living that way, transformed by the gospel, it changes whole communities. That's what happens. The sword of the Spirit. There's nothing that you can't face. There's nothing that you're going to face that God will not address through his word. Hold it tightly. Hold on to that tightly. Master it. Let it master you. How do you put it on? Because we've got to bring this to a close. Paul says in verse 16, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. You see, we believe that the way to get power is to subvert. When Paul says clearly here through Ephesians that the way you get real power is to convert, to be changed, to be renewed. And so the way to get power is through submission, submission to Christ. The way to be protected is to have an armor on that's been given to you. The way to advance is not to prove yourself. That's the source of all of our anxieties. That's the source of all of our, of our distractions. That's the source of all of our depression. They say that today's generation, our younger generation, and our churches today have to be more intentionally focused on reaching the younger generations with the rational body of truth. It's not just about the experience. They want an experience, they say, commentators, that the millennial and post-millennial uh, communities, they want a spiritual experience that is real, that is genuine, that is authentic. The thing is, we have to be prepared for that. The church has to address that and answer to that today. We give them armor. We have to arm them, right? And the way to, you have to be armed and arm them, arm them. And so we talk about the way to get power. They say that the millennial generation is a hardworking generation because they're so filled with anxiety and so filled with depression because they're failing. They don't know. Paul says, be armed. Put on the armor of God you will have the gospel of peace. Be in Christ. Let that be your peace. The way to be protected is to have this armor on. Not to prove yourself, not to fight. You are in a war. You need the right armor, he says. The way up is down. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus encounters the devil. And Jesus thus encounters his lies. And what happens is there's one sequence in Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan tempts him three times. But on one of those occasions, Satan takes, him, takes Jesus up to this high place. And basically, I'm paraphrasing for you, but mainly what he says is, Jesus, I want you to look out and see all of this. I can give you all of this. Now think about it. There's no place in the entire world that you can stand where you can see the entire world. So Satan, what is he doing? What is the enemy doing? He's inflaming Jesus' imagination. He says, I want you to imagine, Jesus, you having everything that I can, you can see as far as the eye can see. You can have kingdoms upon kingdoms. I can give it to you if you just bow down to me. In other words, what, what Satan is saying is you can have all this. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you came? You can have all of this and never have to suffer. You don't even have to go to the cross for this. So don't go. Just bow here and I can give it to you now. And you know how Jesus responds? He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says, it is written, 
Each time Satan comes to him, Jesus advances with the sword. He uses the word of God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know why he does that? He's wearing the belt of truth because he is the belt of truth. He's got the breastplate of righteousness on. The Lord looks at him and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So he knows he is accepted. He knows he is embraced by the Father. That's the breastplate of righteousness. He's focused. He's got the helmet. He knows his mission. He sees it. Not to gain power, but to give power up. The way up is down, and so he came all the way down. He was born in a manger. And so his feet were fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace because he is the gospel of peace. He puts on the shield of faith. He says to the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's got the shield of faith. He's got the belt of truth. Look at Jesus responding constantly with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And yet, how do you really know that he trusts God? It's through his suffering. You see the strength of Jesus' armor through his suffering because Jesus suffered and he suffered. How much did he suffer? Paul says you can put on the armor of God because when you look at the cross, you see Jesus. Jesus went to the cross naked. They stripped him of his clothes. Jesus went to the cross vulnerable. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I am literally falling apart. My insides are coming out. That's why you have the belt. He says, I have been forsaken. In other words, I am not acceptable before God. I have become sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That's why you have the breastplate of righteousness. Look at Jesus' feet. They were pierced. That's why you can be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You see that? Jesus' feet were pierced, but you can dig your heels into trusting in the Father because Jesus, what did he have? All he could do was dig his heels into the cross itself. And so he trusted that God would be faithful. Jesus Christ came completely naked, and he braved the fiery wrath of God, the penalty for our sins. And he did it without a shield. You know why? Because he is our shield. He took all the hits that we deserved. And so instead of wearing a helmet of salvation, there was no rescue for him. He wore a crown of thorns. And so you see the blood pouring from his head. You see a helmet of thorns so we can have a helmet of salvation. How do you know that you have salvation? Look at Christ on the cross. Look at Jesus. Look at his hands. They were pierced. That's why you get the word. That's why you have the sword, because his hands were pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that we deserved, he received. So that you could have the sword of the Spirit. How do you trust in the word? Even to the end, as he was dying, Jesus Christ trusted God. Do you know that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you know what he was doing? He was quoting Psalm 22. That means that on the cross, he was reciting scripture to the end. And the last line of that psalm, for God has done it. It's finished. That's what he says. That's why you can trust, because Jesus trusted to the end. And he was dying, and he died, and he was buried. And yet, God was faithful. 
because he raised Jesus back from the dead. He resurrected Christ. And Paul says, because Jesus rose, we are in him. Union. Jesus Christ went to the cross naked, completely vulnerable, without a shield, so he could be our covering. We can have armor. He took every blow, trust in Christ, trust in his righteousness, trust in his person, trust what he did for you on the cross, and he becomes your shield. He is the armor. And so by you placing your trust in him, the word of God becomes real. That's where the power is. It's a pet peeve of mine when people just kind of blurt out the word of God, right? Uh, As if that's what gives them power. There is power in trusting in the word of God. By spirit, he has given you armor. And so if you've placed your faith and trust in the gospel, that he lived, that Jesus lived the life that you should live, then died the death that you should die, the word of God then has life. It becomes real. You see that? That means that, (laughs) think about this. If you don't trust in the word of God, if you don't trust in the gospel, you have no resource for this war. That means you are naked and you are out there and you've got to brave your guilt. You've got to brave the fight for approval. You have to brave the desire for righteousness and acceptability to other people. You have to brave every suffering and you are totally and utterly alone. You have to brave every fiery arrow on your own. But to the degree that you trust Jesus, who went without any physical armor so that he could become your armor, he, was, he went without any physical armor so he could be pierced for our sins. You are clothed then in his righteousness. That's the only armor you need. It will change the way you view yourself. It will change the way you view others. Trust in Christ. Let's pray.